you know, in the United States, there are about 25,000 jurisdictions that play some kind of role in shaping, regulating, or affecting local land use decisions. So every day, there are, you know, tens of thousands of people trying to make decisions about whether or not you'll change a zoning rule or an ordinance to approve or not approve a development or a site plan or the like. So there's you know, enormous numbers of jurisdictions being made every day. Um, again, it's no surprise to you, I'm just going to quote a few headlines from the papers in the last year. But, you know, the, the fact that land use dispute is kind of a, an everyday occurrence in the our community. So it's, here's one, Mormon's church plans for land ups at Harlem in New York. That was January 9, 2012. Two groups opposing Walmart neighborhood market zoning case in Fort Worth. Uh, city must honor its zoning rules, the case around construction in the Denver Post. There's a question about neighbors opposed Field of Dreams plan and Iowa Town. So I could go on and on. But, you know, the, these kind of local land use disputes uh, make the local papers often almost every day. They can become quite contentious and quite difficult. And in the middle of all that, as, as some of you I think are probably part of, you know, land use boards, whether it's Zoning Board of Appeals or Planning Board or City Council or Town Council, they're the ones who have to sit in the middle of all this and make decisions, theoretically based on a set of laws and rules that's administrative procedure, often set with the state framework and then with sort of local ordinances, and really be kind of the administrative tribunal that tries to really balance these interests. So it's, it's a big challenge, and, you know, for a lot of kind of more of the mundane land decisions, you know, those kinds of boards and systems and rules and regulations work pretty well. But for some of the tougher ones, um, you know, bigger kinds of development proposals where there are opposing interests that sort of heavy stake and uh, heavy conflict, sometimes the existing system does not work as well. Um, so in that regard, we we at the Consensus Building Institute uh, with our colleague at Vermont Law School, uh, a gentleman named Sean Nolan, uh, we over the last 10 years have been working with the Lincoln Institute for Land Policy, uh, which is both kind of a funder and a think tank that supports a variety of efforts, really thinking through what are some alternative methods of land use dispute prevention and resolution, you know, when the kind of existing system seems to kind of break down. So over uh, through research and practice and writing and thinking and doing courses and improving those courses and talking to many planners across the country, um, we, we've developed what we call the mutual gains approach to land use conflict. And let me just kind of lay out a few principles and a little detail on that and then answer um, a little bit of a more specific case study and answer questions. So the, um, the principles really under the mutual gains approach to land use conflict is that part of land use conflict is really driven by people's interests and values. It's not merely a technical decision about whether or not a plan proposal exactly comports to the exact work laid out in local or state law. Um, that oftentimes that important to solve tough land use disputes is involving more, not less, people in the conversation and the kind of formal procedure of public hearings and the like is very limited in helping people explore options, be creative, and really get at their interests and concerns. Um, and that oftentimes if you are going to pursue alternative approach, it requires some significant strong kind of community and public engagement skills coupled with kind of a legal, technical, standard kind of planning analysis. Um, we kind of contrast our mutual gains approaches we're laying out to the conventional approach, uh, just tease this out a little bit more and emphasize what I just said, that again, that oftentimes land use decisions are not just about technical considerations, they're about interests and values that need to be teased out with the public and various stakeholders who represent the public, that um, it is very important at times to engage a variety of stakeholders and try to jointly wrestle with the problems at hand. Um, 
that ultimately in some cases through effective collaboration, you can really couple technical viability, economic feasibility, good planning and development of architecture with really trying to meet stakeholders' interests and concerns, trying to reconcile the different interests. Um, um, and lastly, that you know the role of the public in, in collaborative problem solving, as we might call it in the mutual approach, is really to try to help people, especially the public, engage not just in general with complaining and opposing, but actually in real problem solving about how to actually solve the challenge at hand. So the, the book that we developed, which has a, lays out a framework and goes through lots of case studies and gives lots of examples, but let me just name two pieces. We have kind of principles that we think are important in, in the mutual gains approach to land use revolution, as well as some key stages. And I won't go into a lot of detail, but I just want to kind of name these briefly. Under um, principles, I think there's five or six that we say are, are important, and they can be operationalized in lots of different ways. But one is to engage people early. Uh, if a plan comes late in development, um, it's already kind of cooked. People spend a lot of money and time on it, and it can be hard to change. So engaging early is really important. It's really important to listen and learn first rather than react. Um, that really uh, proposals that can be built on interests and not just positions can be very effective. That um, it's important to kind of design the engagement process for the particular problem at hand that, that a board or a community may be facing. The tendency is to want to exclude too many people for fear it'll be too complicated, too hard, too difficult. But actually, we advise that key principles actually involve more or many, not just a few. That there's joint learning that can take place um, in these cases. That not not always, but sometimes a skilled facilitator, whether that's informal through a local person, a local planner, or a hired professional, uh, is an important skill that could be important. And then a focus on relationships. In a lot of these cases, people are going to be neighbors for better or worse down the road. So those are some key principles, and we lay those out, lay those out in the book in a fair amount more detail and show cases where those have been used or, or not. And then really there's four stages or steps to thinking about more collaborative ways to addressing land use disputes. And again, this can be from public engagement to an advisory board to a mediation. There's any number of tools. But one is really, as you face this, is really taking some time to take a step back and assess the situation understanding kind of issues, concerns, and the like. So taking some time to do some assessment and step back. Two is really taking some time to design a process that's going to work for the situation and the interests and needs and the technical issues that maybe need to be solved. So it's designing a process at stage two. Stage three is, is, is engaging in the process, the collaborative process, through some kind of facilitation, deliberation, online engagement, or some combination of things that's really focused on problem solving. Um, so it's this sort of deliberation phase. And then fourth would really be, as you are in that and, and being to close in on a potential approach, is really thinking about how you actually implement the agreements that you're developing and think very carefully about, you know, the long-term implementation of what you're doing. Sometimes approval of plans, those plans are actually going to take 10, 15, 20 years to develop. So you really have to think very carefully about the long-term implications and also how people are going to handle each other going forward over years not so that's, you know, four stages that we also lay out in, in a fair amount of detail in the, in, in the book as well. But I want to stop there, um, turn it over to my co-presenter to talk about really a very specific case, and then I'll frame will turn to you to, to kind of guide the questions. Hello? Hi there. Oh, I'm sorry. I just came back on. Um, thank you so much, Pat. Um, and just before Leslie starts, I just want to remind people um, to get on to mute. They press star six 
very helpful for that background sound. And then when they come off mute, which I just did incorrectly, you can press pound six and get right back on. So thank you for those of you that have coming come on more recently. If you press star six, you will be on mute for the time being for Leslie's presentation. So uh, let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Leslie Allison. She is the founding member and executive director of the Shama Peak Land Alliance, a group of conservation-minded landowners working collaboratively to practice and promote ecologically and economically sound land management in the San Juan Mountains. She is also the program director of the newly formed Western Landowners Alliance, which advances policies and practices that sustain working land. And prior to that organizational work, she managed a seven, nearly 17,000-acre ranch, implementing progressive conservation management. Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie, and go ahead. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the call with you guys. I feel like I'm going to learn more. In fact, I already have uh, learned a tremendous amount just in the last five minutes, and I uh, can't wait to pick up that book. Um, so, uh, Gitman asked if I would share the story of the Chama Peak Land Alliance, and uh, my only problem is picking out which part of the story to tell. But um, just uh, doing a takeoff a little bit on what Pat had to say, um, I think I'll tailor this a little bit to concur with exactly what he said. My uh, my background, again, is I spent the past 15 years uh, managing a large conservation-oriented ranch in Colorado. Uh, we were working on basic land health issues, um, doing a lot of really fantastic work on the ground. And my first county planning experience was, much like Pat said, we got uh, somebody called me and said, Leslie, you better take a look at this. And it was a, a brand-new land use code the county was proposing, 256 pages long, and uh, we had uh, two weeks to submit written comments and then an opportunity to speak for three minutes at a public hearing. And um, in the land use code that was being proposed were a number of things that would really have shut down our operations uh, inadvertently. It was a well-intended code, but nevertheless uh, caused us uh, quite a bit of consternation. So we ended up going to war against this. And at the end of the day, I ended up actually on the Planning Commission <laughs> as a result. Um, so that's stands to me in, in pretty strong contrast with what we have now going on with the Chama Peak Land Alliance, and I'll, I'll tell that story now. Um, so there were a number of landowners scattered across this landscape. Right now we have about 200,000 acres of private land in the, in the alliance. Um, but by and large, we were all kind of doing our own thing. In some cases, we never met one another, uh, certainly didn't know what was going on on these other ranches um, in any detail. But... Uh, Little by little, we begin gathering for different reasons. We might be aggravated by a, a county ordinance that was being proposed someplace. Uh, we have two counties and two states here. and uh, Or it might be forest health issues, or it could be something else. And we would gather up and we'd talk about the need for better landowner representation. But we never quite could get it, you know, underway to form an actual organization. We just didn't have the capacity um, and so every time one of these issues would resolve, we would sort of go back to our own operations. Um, and then one day, uh, a, a more a serious uh, situation arose, which was the county, one of the counties fell on financial hard times and hired um, an assistant assessor to go out and try to um, strip away the agricultural tax classification from as many parcels as they could. Um, and for those of you unfamiliar with that, uh, the agricultural producers in most states get a, um, a lower property tax rate, um, 
if they can prove they're in, in ag. Um, in this case, uh, the assessor took a very out-of-the-box, very aggressive approach that put landowners in a real conflict if they were trying to manage for more than just agriculture. So, for instance, we had a landowner who was collaborating with the Division of Wildlife on a bighorn sheep restoration process. The landowner had been grazing domestic sheep up in the high country, and the wildlife division asked if they would consider moving those sheep out of the high country because there's a risk of disease spreading from domestics to the wild. And the landowner said, sure, and they pulled the sheep out. Well, now with this new assessor, here comes uh, the tax collector to say, now you're going to see an increased tax for doing the right thing uh, with another state agency. So this is the kind of conflict it created for those doing riparian restoration all kinds of things. So we started gathering again uh, to talk about this issue, and this time caught the attention of a woman named Monique DiGiorgio, who was at the time the conservation strategist for the Western Environmental Law Center. And she was intrigued that we had a group of landowners trying to do the right thing, and public policy was getting in their way. So um, uh, Greg Costello at the time, acting director of uh, Western Environmental Law Center, agreed to allow Monique to spend about half time in her position facilitating our effort, uh, working with us, and, and very quickly uh, helped us turn into a real organization. We, we filed as a nonprofit and had an official launch in, in fall of 2010, and uh, we were off to the races as an organization. Um, but what was kind of magical about that moment in time was that as we became an organization, we moved from a, a sort of reactionary mode into a sort of a proactive mode where we begin to understand that we were all doing this kind of work on the landscape, that everybody had a passion uh, for trying to improve the land, trying to improve their communities, trying to provide education for youth. Um, and all of a sudden, we had a great joy in, in camaraderie in what we were doing. We began having tours of one another's ranches, sharing ideas, sharing contractors, looking at fences that ran between us to see are they wildlife friendly, um, all kinds of things. So we, went, we found out we could do good work together instead of just opposing uh, things we saw as bad. Um, so um, one of the, and, and I want to just interject here too, that we have quite a diversity of landowners. We have traditional ranchers, second homeowners, uh, wealthy landowners with a strong conservation interest, uh, all kinds of folks um, coming together. And um, one of the things that really uh, uh, was a kind of a mark of success for us was that not long after we had uh, started working together this way, a uh, landman came knocking, and we were suddenly in the crosshairs for a pretty significant oil and gas development. And because we had the organizational capacity, thanks to Monique, um, and because we had the relationships that we'd been building, we were able to come together very quickly and decide as a community that, you know, some of the landowners would like to develop their minerals. Others did not want to. Others had split estate, um, all kinds of different interests. But we decided that whatever development might happen, we wanted it to be intelligent and to serve the general interests of the community and the environment to whatever degree we could make that happen. Um, that was a very positive step, and we've now translated that into a memorandum of cooperation among landowners and from there, we're implementing a, a community mapping and planning process, which will map the community values on the landscape and find ways to protect those as we uh, move forward into this next chapter uh, on our landscape. Um, this is a, just a remarkably different process than um, I encountered uh, coming from the county side 
So here we have landowners really driving this process and, and um, feeling happy to be involved um, before it was a, a threat to people's property values or why wasn't I involved, that sort of thing. So I think that really speaks to what Pat introduced us uh, to in the beginning. So I think I'll just pause there. And Thank you so much, Leslie. Great, great stories. Um, well, let's, uh, I'd like to uh, move on to the questions that people have and uh, get a little deeper with both of these things. This, uh, first one, we might set, go back to Pat uh, right off the bat with making it happen. Uh, Kelly Ann, I believe, from Pennsylvania, is interested in how to get regular people involved versus those that are typically, you know, really jazzed about an issue to come to face-to-face -face meetings. And actually, two questions down, um, Jonathan has a similar question about getting traditionally overlooked stakeholders to become substantially more involved in these conversations with students, um, people with disabilities, et cetera. So, Pat, what are, what are your, some of your strategies to getting more people involved? Um, so, I mean, great question today. All of us on the vulnerability face this challenge. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a rocket science answer, but I'll try a few things. So, um, as you all know, you get the professional meeting goers or those who are particularly worked up, and unfortunately, people's you know people's threat and anger drives them to meetings much faster and harder than people's sort of satisfaction or happiness. Uh, so, unfortunately, meetings tend to draw the unhappy, not the happy. Um, so, how to get kind of as you're you know you're you're doing a comprehensive plan or you've got a development that's going to affect a lot of people and you know who's angry but you don't know how everybody else feels. There's a variety. Of things that we, you know we've, we've tried to do to see you know kind of what's out there. So um, one is different kinds of meetings. So there's formal hearings and all those kinds of things that you need to have. But there are you know in a lot of agencies, for instance, or, or groups sometimes try informal poster boards. They try sometimes you know they encourage the developer to go out and talk to people in their living rooms or with existing groups, whether it's Qantas or Rotaries or the locally owned business professionals or whatever. So you you can access existing. Um, Forms that people are gathering, you try to go to them to have conversations about the issue or the like. That, that's one potential use of a facilitator in harder cases, is they can go out and try to talk to people. Um, some cases we've held, as we start a project, focus groups and invited people in or gone to them to try to bring more people into the conversation about, you know, issue X or Y. Certainly online, you know, there's lots of people trying lots of different things. So there's general kind of blogs and comment boards, which can get more negative than positive, but they're there. There's an interesting online gaming that different folks are trying at Emerson College in Boston. They've been trying different kind of gaming and public engagement and land use that's going on. So there's a number of kind of different tools. Marine Map is an effort uh, around coastal oceans planning to engage people very directly in data and mapping where they can be right from their home with a pretty complex data set off of a website that's pretty user-friendly. Um, so you know, those are a number of things that we've seen people use. I, I would say one of the a few other things that, again, cost money and effort, but one is I've seen to get younger people to meetings is provide daycare. You know, since you provide mm -hmm. so much for them to leave their kids for an hour and a half while they go to a meeting, because as we all know, people with young kids, it's very hard to get them to meetings because of their responsibilities. Um, and lastly, you know, some innovative ways of just trying to get more people to the meetings you do have. We did a, a shared use project around a local uh, city as well as their water their water district, and literally put along this sort of walking path, like big poster boards before every meeting, use lots of different ways to try to engage people to get them to come. And we actually had pretty good attendance. I think we really spent a lot of time reaching out to get their attention about where things were happening. Thanks, Pat. Great ideas. Leslie, do you have anything to add? 
There we go. Um, you know, uh, that's been a challenge for us, too. We have uh, members of the ranching community that uh, really don't like to get out to meetings. Um, but when we were able to convey through neighbors that they respected, that there was something important on the agenda that had uh, implications for uh, their land use, um, that was effective in getting more people out than we would normally see. Uh, it still remains a challenge for sure. Okay, thank you. And uh, don't forget to put yourself on mute uh, by pressing star six. I'm hearing some funny background noises. Um, uh, and we will come to one or two of your questions and, and hope you get off mute in, in a minute. Uh, Patrick, you talked about the value of professional facilitation at one point. Another question from Jonathan in Colorado. Uh, how do you sell the value of professional facilitation, however? Um, a, a great question. So, um, it, a, a quick comment, then maybe I'll overview thoughts. You know, it's interesting because most cities and towns, they set money aside for litigation, and they are very, very prepared that if they have to get sued by uh, you know, someone around a land use decision, they've got a pool of money to go to. Uh, that they budget in their town budget every year to do it. What's interesting is they don't ever budget for any collaboration or assistance to actually solve problems before going to court, which I find you know, sad and ironic and not great for my business necessarily. But I, I do think in terms of, of facilitation, people come to us or are convinced to come to, to facilitators, I think for a variety of reasons. One, the pain's so bad they don't know what else to do. And frankly, that's a big driver of people being willing, okay, I, my hands are up, I cry uncle, let's, let's get a facilitator mediator. On the more positive front, I think it's really trying to explain what role they have, that they're not usurping people's decisions, that they are there to help improve communication and kind of grease the communication that's having a difficult time happening for a variety of reasons, that they can help, they can ask good questions and help people reframe their positional statements in a way that people can feel better and then begin to engage in a different conversation. And they can help organize, and it's not supplementing or replacing the existing formal land use process, but supplementing and adding to that in a way of informal ways which people can engage that allows people to have a very different kind of conversation. Um, and so that's, you know, some of the, the things that we say about trying to sell or convince people to use facilitation. And then you have to scale that, that ability to use that professional service with the kind of ability and skill set you need and, and seniority and cost along with your budget, and you may have to, you know, limit your interventions or use facilitation very carefully. Um, this is not widespread. You know, in some places, I know in Albuquerque, the city council developed a fund that actually provided a small amount of money, which was different than most places, to actually engage local facilitators to at least run one or two meetings if there was a community development dispute issue, and they'd at least get kind of free help to start. And then if the developer and our community decided they wanted to proceed with a more engaged process, they would have to figure out the funding of that person or someone else. But that was a very innovative way for one city to try to kind of get facilitation in the door to help people if needed. Thank you so much. Um, Leslie, have you found a need for professional facilitation? You know, we, we have not really yet. Um, we've brought in speakers to talk about different issues, um, but we, uh, we have not had that need. Um, my experience, honestly, with facilitators um, sometimes from the outside is it's, it's so formulaic that it feels like uh, going back to third grade or something like that. So my only comment to that effect is that when you do come in to facilitate in that kind of a group, you know, a very um, sophisticated, um, more intimate, customized style would certainly be uh, appreciated and, and certainly more embraced. Okay. Um, I'm 
going to go on now, and uh, Philip from Indiana, if you want to come on the line to talk a little bit more about your question, but I will ask it, and I think uh, Leslie has um, probably has some good uh, good response to it. Um, you ask, can you discuss the timelines associated with careful consensus building? Is slower better? And uh, how do you know when to put things on the table that might be controversial? And so if, if you're there and you press uh, pound six, do you have anything to add to your question or some context? Well, if he does, he can, he can come on in a minute. But go ahead, Leslie. What, what would you say about timelines and slow, fast? <laughs> well, I think what I'm going to say is probably um, – not helpful to a lot of folks that are under uh, deadline pressures to get certain things done or uh, are in this professionally. I would say slower is certainly better out in the landscape that I'm in because that's what uh, is required. It just takes time to build relationships and trust. And I think that the degree to which you have that trust and those relationships is the degree to which you can entertain uh, productively more controversial issues. That being said, if you can quickly establish those relationships and trust, by whatever mechanism, I think um, you can then go ahead and start introducing those uh, those issues. Um, and that, again, is a matter of how you approach them as much as anything. Well, given that, you know, how do you know when to put things on the table and maybe for how long? Is that a, would that be a different issue? Well, I think, I think that's, I mean, that's the question. If, if you've come in with an agenda, let's say you come into a ranching community and you would like to introduce schools to the community, uh, coming in and throwing that on the table is probably not going to go over very well. Um, if you come into a community and you are working with folks, getting to know them, helping them meet some other needs, uh, then you can sit down at a kitchen table and start talking about wolves. You're going to have a completely different response. Um, so I think it's really circumstantial um, as to what you're trying to accomplish and what your place is in the local community if you have any of those relationships. So I think that's a tough, it's a tough question to answer. In my experience, slower is always better, but I realize that doesn't fit with some some of the needs out there. Pat, anything to add? Um, I mean, I, I agree with what I think is slower is almost always better if you can do it. I, I would say, in the words of a famous recent politician, is let no good crisis go unwasted. And you know, as a, when we're called in as mediators, when there is a crisis and a conflict and fevers are heated. It's painful and difficult, but the good part about that is there's energy, and there's energy to work with, and there's a kind of a crisis in which there's a chance to reorder relationships and and even potentially the solution in a way that's different. So even though one tries to avoid those things, those are sometimes opportunities to really clarify issues and reorient people if done right, um, and that energy around the conflict can actually be used and directed in certain good ways at the time. And um, on, on to the next one, and uh, from an anonymous person in Maine, I know that these issues are happening around the country. What are some abro- approaches to dealing with conspiracy theorists? Leslie, do you want to take a stab at that first? Yeah, I'm laughing about that. We have uh, we do have that in our community. Um, anything associated with land conservation or environmentalism is associated with the uh, UN, uh, United Nations, and black helicopters. Um, and my only experience really is that is that it's a peer-to-peer kind of a thing. If, if you've got a couple of folks that are on the fence that you can persuade 
is, is that this is not a part of a big conspiracy, and they really begin to understand that, and then their neighbors watch their actions. It has a, a spreading outward concentric circles effect in the community, and that has actually we watched that happen with some, particularly with conservation easements in our community. So I, I would say it's really influencing some of the key folks that other people in the community are watching. Okay, some real peer-to-peer talk. Any anything, uh, Pat, from you about some of this UN business that's going on? I mean, I, I would say a few things. One is I think it's really, and some you, you take some time to figure this out. I think mean, it's really important to understand what's the problem in front of you. Is this, you know, is this really a values-based dispute or a worldview dispute? Which people are just seeing the world very differently based on their fundamental sort of identities and values, and you're not going to, it's those are hard ones to tackle. So, you know, that... Or, despite the fact that people are going to have different values and different identities, is there beneath the conspiracy or the wild claim at the start, is there actually an interest that maybe you can try and meet? And the only way you can find out is by engaging people, asking questions, and having a conversation, and not just making assumptions. Um, and that takes some time and effort, and it can be painful when you think this person's half-baked or a pain in the ass, excuse my question. Um, so I think one is really to understand, you know, what, uh, what, what level is the dispute taking place? And then I, I would, and I would, I would agree with Lucy that I think you know the as you all know the messenger is everything. So you know when we have disputes and we have local environmental groups with local landowners or developers and others at the table, that can often be a very different kind of conversation when national or regional groups are brought in who people don't really know, and then all the fears and anxieties that locals have about outsiders kick in, and then it's just a much harder problem to solve. Um, and, and it can be the exact same message, but it's who's delivering it that, that really matters um, in terms of people's ability to kind of accept that. And I would say one last thing is, however, not someone may be one way or the other, you know, chances are they're there, you know, the strategic matter may be pushing a political agenda, which is always possible, and also potentially out of fear and anger and, and fight. And if you can do things to help cool them out and make them feel less afraid, that some of the stuff that comes with it might actually come down as well. Good advice. Thank you, Pat. Um, Next question is from Rodney in Colorado, and he asks, are communities staying with a progression from visioning to comprehensive plans to land use regulations, or are there deviations from this progression that people are now following? How are communities incorporating urban growth boundaries and other intergovernmental relations into land use planning? Pat, you want to pick up on that? You know, this is probably a question I can't answer as well. Um, I wish my colleague Sean Dillon was with me. He could probably answer it better. So I'm not, I don't feel like I'm equipped to, to give that a good answer. Well, the really good thing is we've got a lot of people on this line that might be willing to uh, either chime in or add to the, uh, the document here because it is a very specific question. Um, so we are encouraging people to please add to the Google Doc um, and or Take your, yourself off mute quickly um, to answer Rodney's question, or we'll, we'll come back to it later in the call if we have time and see if anybody has some ideas. Leslie, do you know about this? Um, do you have some thoughts? Well, you know, Rod's one of the people I would probably ask. And hi, Rod, if you're out there. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe maybe Rod can, can add some of his thoughts that he knows about it, and people will continue to add to the Google Doc. So thank you, Rod, for bringing it, that question to the floor. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on. Um, John from West Virginia, and you might want to come um, take yourself off of mute by uh, hitting pound six with your question. Uh, it it starts with um, with any 
Any prior experience with or thought about the engagement of residents in the assessment of health and environmental impacts of natural gas development. And um, he cites the Battlement Mesa Plan unit development that's in Garfield County, Colorado. Uh, I guess their report was recommended as a must read um, for health impact assessment. Are either of you, uh, Pat, are you familiar with this document? Um, I'm familiar with the issue and some broader issues issue related, but not that specific document. Mm -hmm. Uh, would you like to speak to it? And if, John, if, you, if you're there and you want to chime in and be more specific, um, come on in. John, are you there? I'm, I'm here, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I uh, uh, have – we've got a lot of oil and gas development here in West Virginia, and uh, I, I've been thinking that the model with the health impact assessment is a little more germane than uh, sort of dealing with people than the uh, – uh, uh, traditional uh, uh, NEPA environmental assessment approach, and um, uh, as much as possible, uh, uh, what kinds of questions have you uh, gotten that you, you feel are, are, are germane from, from people to uh, oil and gas development, and maybe what are some of the unexpected things that have come out of uh, oil and gas development that those of us that have to deal with it uh, ought to be uh, mindful of? I have a, this is Pat, I have a few thoughts and I'm curious what other folks think too. So um, we, we've, we've dealt with specific issues in a few cases around sort of uh, energy siting. That actually ranges from gas and oil to wind. Uh, and we've also dealt with some broader kind of health-related concerns around other kinds of uses, not necessarily gas and oil. But um, so I think a few things. Um, one, as I, as, as I think you know, I, I think across the country, and this is a generic statement, and it varies community by community. People's perception of risk can be very, very different. So, you know, generically speaking, in West Virginia in part, in Texas in particular, you know, people have been seeing gas and oil for a long, long time, and they're used to it in their backyards. And so their perception of risk sometimes may be different than if you're in Pennsylvania, and frankly, your grandfather maybe saw it, but you haven't. You might have a very kind of different sense of risk around some of these things as you approach it. The people's kind of risk perception tolerance is very different, and I think it's partly not so not solely risk-based, I mean, uh, regionally based. I think the challenge for, for uh, gas oil development through hydraulic fracturing is that it, it, um, it turns out parts of the technology are not that new, but it gets more and more sophisticated and complicated. Um, it's deep underground, and, and what people worry about is risk may not actually be the risk they should worry about. So, you know, I think sometimes people drill, you know, and I've sat through a lot of technical presentations with EPA and academics and others on this issue, but, you know, the question is, is where can you help people focus on what actually are the real risks? Industry may or may not be that forthcoming about what they are. People who are really scared may not actually be that accurate about where the risks are, but can you help people engage in where, where are the actual risks to us? Is it really the drilling deep down 8,000 feet, or is it actually the construction of well casement and concrete right at the groundwater level that we really need to worry about and monitor over time? Is it really the fracking fluids going deep into the water, or is it really what comes out and so that deep saline and actually how it's kind of managed in terms of ponds or put in storage tanks or shipped off and injected underground? So trying to get people to break down the different process and try to really collectively as much as you can determine where are the risks we need to worry about and what can we do about them. Um, and so I think a thing like a health impact assessment, engaging lots of people and some experts and taking some time to walk through that can be very 
valuable. And I think, unfortunately, what happens is you get the dialogue where industry says, nothing to see here, nothing to worry about, we have a full under control, we have a lot of money, we've done this forever, we'll leave this alone, there's nothing to worry about. And you've got, you know, communities who, you know, at, at worst are just deeply panicked that everything's going to be ruined, and it's going to be very hard to have a meaningful conversation. And I think what makes this harder, this issue across the country these days, is that, um, it's been very hard for people to find ways to collectively generate accurate information about risks and prescriptions for resolution and, you know, what to worry about and what not to. And, and everyone's paid by someone and everyone gets tainted. And so it is a challenge to find kind of legitimate technical folks who can give advice that are kind of independent of one side or the other, so to speak. Thank you, Pat. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. We asked Leslie and Pat what they felt were the most um, salient important question, so we'll see if we can come back to a couple of these, but I'd like to go to one that Leslie was interested in, which is should planners make an effort to know about the culture of the area or the neighborhood that they will be meeting with in advance? How can that best be accomplished? Uh, yeah, so um, my answer to that was absolutely, um, and, and particularly in the kind of rural community I'm in. And um, we had a great example of that a few years back. A planner came in to the community from, I don't know where he came from, but uh, made a big effort to go out into the landscape and meet with uh, people in their homes and talk to them about his love of the land and how he wanted to be on a ranch and, and spend time on a ranch as a kid. And, um, you know, he could really do no wrong for a period of time in our community um, and, and until some bigger issues came up that were bigger than him. Um, but he uh, he really made a great entree um, into the community that way. And I think there's that is time extremely well spent um, that otherwise later is going to be spent uh, fighting in endless sort of public um, debates and arguments. And great. Thank you. Um, and... Uh, Annie uh, just uh, wrote in a question. Annie, are, are you there? It looks like, are you from Hawaii? Is that right? About training programs like 1,000 Friends of Oregon's Land Use Leadership Institute, that you had a question about that. You need to press pound six. Annie, are you there? Uh, she is She is interested in uh, training. Okay, I, I, I fixed that. <laughs> Hi, this is Annie. Hi, Annie. Go ahead and ask your question. Okay, so uh, my question was, how can, I guess, uh, land use leadership or other training programs like Thousand Friends of Oregon or um, I couldn't find the exact Oakland group, but it's, you know, trained often um, underrepresented groups, uh, members of them to be on, you know, land use commissions or other city or county commissions. Um, and I wonder how that can sort of work together with this notion of breaking divide. Because um, in some ways, I think training advocates could potentially create more conflict. But I was wondering if any of the particular experience with these kinds of um, uh, training programs. Any thoughts, Patrick or uh, or Leslie? Um, the, I don't. I'm not familiar with the, the Oregon program. I do know uh, just a few examples of, of programs that I think are actually pretty successful. So some, some of, there's a uh, – Frank Duke started one in Virginia, and there's others that have been across the country. So several states have these sort of natural, uh, uh, natural resource leadership institutes in which they try to bring people from state agencies, from advocacy groups, from development community or the business community together, and they go through over nine months a kind of series of trainings and weekend events and hikes, and, and they really kind of explore a range of issues around, you know, natural resource use management development regulation. 
and they really try to build relationships across those sectors, and they try to give them some good tools from collaboration to other things. To and often they sort of end with going to the state house and you know talking to state senators, representatives. But they you know they really try to build those relationships across sectors through the training program, and I think those can be really valuable to really kind of build and engender trust. Um, and I know in uh, Pace uh, Land Use Law Center out of Pace University of New York in the Hudson River Valley, try to do something basically similar to get around land use and land use mediation dispute resolution by bringing planners and developers and environmental groups together to really do some training and mediation facilitation and build some basic kind of capacity in how to use collaboration versus conflict to solve problems. And I think that had some measure of success as well. Thanks, Pat. Um, back to you, Leslie. On, uh, I'm going to skip down to maintaining consensus over a multi-year process where new people are constantly joining the process or key people leave the process. And this is a question from Lynn from Washington, D.C., and you've also talked about how, you know, the long term is best, but there are changes that happen over the long term. How do you deal with that? Hmm. Um, you know, that's a good question, and, and it'll test our alliance, which is still relatively new um, for certain. Um, I think that the, what we've tried to do, and so far it's been very helpful, is to establish a culture of interaction in our group. And I actually have a great um, example of this. Um, for one thing, our board happens to be very, um, I'm going to say, even-tempered, uh, cordial, civil, respectful, mutually respectful, um, it helps a lot, and, and we try to uh, extend that out through our organization at every opportunity. And a great example came along for us when we had this uh, oil and gas effort by the BLM to do some leasing, and we felt they had not done a very good job on the analysis of a couple particular sites. And um, we were working with some colleagues on a letter, and it was the staff really in our organization working with uh, colleagues in another organization on a letter and the letter took a very strong tone um, reacting to these proposed leases. And we sent it out to our alliance members for feedback. And everybody seemed to like it because everyone was very upset about the situation. But one alliance member wrote back and said, you know, this does not reflect who we are as an organization. I know I won't accept this letter. And it was irritating because we had worked on this letter for weeks and really were right there and we were under deadline. Um, but we had to sit back and look at that and realize he was absolutely right. We had to go back to this foundation that we had of mutual respect, and that extended to whoever we were working with, even people that we were in disagreement with. Um, so that would be the only thing I could really offer to you in that particular way, is if you can set, like in our board, we have a chairman that's really set a strong tone. We try to bring in board members who support that tone and cultivate that over time. And, it's, by the way, it's also it's in all of our literature. We try to do it in anything we write and put out to the public as well. Pat, anything to add about maintaining a consensus over a multi-year process? I thought Leslie's answer was terrific. Okay. Um, I, I would just add to that that I think, you know, in kind of the public processes I do with lots of different pieces, I, you know, with public and agencies and whatever, um, <clears throat> I do think trying to build a robust, Structure for longer-term processes that that really can bear these changes in positions and employees and relationships, um, so that there's a. I like the cultural story that Leslie told, and then the kind of this structure and process and engagement, and also kind of ongoing and periodic evaluation of how things are going, and then reflecting back to folks about that. 
putting those things in place can help as people kind of come in and out of the process. But I think the cultural piece is essential. Right. And, and Pat, I think this also for you, what are, what are innovative tools for including the regulated stakeholders in dialogue prior to crafting regulations? This is from uh, Peter in Maryland. Right. So, um, so one is, as some of you, many of you know, it's going to depend on your state. You know, sunshine laws may make it really hard to get your, you know, say to get your land use board or your select person or your council people, you know, in any informal setting or with different people outside of the formal hearing because of the way the sunshine laws work in the state. So I want to recognize that as a kind of a constraint. That being said, there are a number of tools we've seen used to, to try to kind of, so say you imagine you're building towards, you know, you're going to have to redo your, you know, your zoning laws or whatever it is. Um, there's some different tools you could use to engage folks. So but prior to, we've seen policy dialogues be used. So just to give an example, in Delaware, um, they were very interested in ultimately changing some of their state and Newcastle County rules around permitting process. But if they just went to do that, it would cause a lot of positioning and people getting into their corners. So they actually uh, worked with the Chamber of Commerce's Public Policy Institute, really organized a set of stakeholders from different interests of staff and say, okay, let's build a policy dialogue about, well, how would we improve our permitting process to protect the environment, protect kind of growth management, and make sure that we're getting answers quicker and more efficiently and faster, whatever the answer might be. And so they engaged in a series of analyzing the existing procedures, making recommendations for what the state and the county could do. Delaware is unique because it's small. And they came out with a set of recommendations. Those recommendations kind of provided some groundwork and sort of broad public broadcasting within the more formal process to take place and taking up some, not necessarily all, of those recommendations in, in, in regulation. Um, in regulation itself, and at the local level, there's less, there's not as many administrative procedures that allow you to do this, so I think there are ways you could probably do it legally with some crafting. You know, at, at the federal level, they have the negotiated rulemaking act, where in certain instances, federal agencies engage stakeholders in a formal process of writing regulations together to the extent they can, and that can be very effective where you have lots of different interests, you know it's going to be contentious, and whatever the agency does, it's going to get wrong unless it engages people in some real serious problem solving. That can be done at the local or state level, but, but people don't have the kind of administrative procedures in place to do that as easily. Okay. Uh, Leslie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that before we move on? No, I don't think you can. Okay. Um, Thomas from Massachusetts asked, asked a question that feels pretty open-ended. So if um, Tom uh, from Massachusetts, who, who asked this last question that's um, on, the, on the Google Doc, how to best invite interest in opening up, recording, and presenting people's interests without locking in positions or prejudice? Um, Tom, if you're there from Massachusetts and want to join us uh, with any bit more detail about your question, you're welcome to join us. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, this is Tom. It's really been an engaging process and great conversation so far. Uh, in my community, we did a design charrette, and um, we got people involved, but not everybody uh, understood what the charrette was, and people uh, didn't participate because they really couldn't get the, their minds around the issue. So, Pat, how do you deal with that? Um on a lot of issues that are complex, um, and I, you know, I don't know what the issue was that you guys were all taking up, you, you know, there's really, there's probably, if you have the money and time, which is the, the limitation here, is you really have to think about this as a communications and marketing strategy. You know, if you're trying to engage people on the issue and, you know, throw them into a meeting and give them lots of diagrams and designs and information, just maybe you know, overwhelming people and they kind of shut down and not even come. 
So part of that is really a campaign of building awareness and understanding of issues in different forms and different methods and actually putting into place that kind of public information and campaign effort prior to the actual shredder event. So when people get there, there's a lot more understanding of context and issue and the like, and then they're really probably more ready to go. So the, the challenge to that is time and money. And so I recognize that. That's good advice if you have lots of resources. It's harder to do if you don't. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Um, we're, we're getting near the end, and I think we, we have two questions that are maybe two sides of a similar coin from uh, two anonymous people because these questions are different. One is, how do you deal kind of with difficult people? There are some people that just like to say no to everything. What can you do to diffuse them and move on in the face of adversity? The other is just kind of like developers have all this money and staying power, and they can stay around you know, for a long time, how do we deal with that? Uh, Leslie, you might want to take up the, we've talked a little bit about this, but what, what do you do with people that just like to say no? You know, again, I uh, I guess, I guess my only, I, I think there, I think you, you end up with people that at some point you sort of have to throw up your hands and say, we're just not going to get very far with this person for whatever reason, and that does happen, I think. Uh, here and there. Um, for the most part, again, I go back to this idea that we've really focused on, and, and that's changing the culture. We're, we're trying not only to change the culture in terms of just how we behave with one another and establishing that civility, but we're trying to change a culture that really has to do with community values and interactions, and I think that really happens through building relationships. And it's, it's one thing to say no or to yell at, at somebody you've never met before you really don't engage with, much, much harder to do that with somebody that you've uh, shared some coffee with over the kitchen table or shared a project with or have some kind of a constructive relationship with. So I would just say that it's one of the feelings I have in the rural West is that often we don't have those relationships maybe at some point in the past with farm buildings and things like that. Maybe that was more there. I don't know. But the isolation that we experience, I think, causes us a lot of friction. And then you know, as we get more popular, it's just harder to know everybody in the room. So um, I would say the best anecdote is really relationships to the degree that you can build them. Thank you. Uh, maybe Pat can, can just take a, a swipe at this developer's question. Um, this is from Maryland, that they have more money, more staying power. How can we not be defeated during the developer's time frame of 10, 20 years to get valuable land for to dense development. Any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, a, few, a few thoughts. Um, you know, I'll just have to understand the context better. But um, I would say there's inside-outside strategy. So the inside strategy is there, in fact, are some developers with enough convincing and conversation and potentially realizing that you can hurt them in other ways if they don't engage with you. You know, it might actually be open to different kinds of conservation development that actually would, you know, advance the interests of conservation or land preservation and development to some extent. So I think that's that's the inside strategy. And, you know, that, that can work in interesting ways. I think the outside strategy is to build a coalition that's big and powerful and influential enough and staying enough that actually you can, you know, influence at decision-making boards and through media efforts and campaigns, you know, what kind of happens in your community. And just a quick example in the you know, place I grew up in Western Colorado is, you know, the ranchers and the environmental community in the Pacific Valley have been at each other's throats for decades. But at, well, finally, 
the ranchers realized they weren't going to get out of, they weren't going to really get to survive in ranching if they didn't get the money for their land. So easements became a real possibility financially, really, for them to protect their operation. And two, environmentalists realized if there aren't ranchers, there's, you know, 10, 5, one lot houses, and those really suck. So, you know what, let's get together, let's get these guys some easements, let's band together to make hay in the media and the land use board and whatever, and let's really preserve some land. And so that coalition made a huge difference in the valley, you know, against some developers and with some developers who were more willing to work with them to make a difference. But it was that coalition building on mutual allies that made the big difference. And that took time and effort to build, and people had to find the mutual interest that brought them together. Thanks, Patrick. Um, I'm going to, uh, so we're going to close up the, the call soon. We've got to most of the questions today, but I do want to encourage all of you to add to this document that will be sent out to you and will be up live for a little while. Uh, please uh, review the, the notes that are going on. Caitlin is doing an awesome job of keeping of note-taking during this call. Um, we want to thank you all for, um, for that, and you'll also note that there are um, quite a bit of um, a number of resources at the very end. So there's, there's lots more that you can dive into on uh, this issue of building consensus and bridging divides. Before we let you all go, I'd like to ask one last question of both Leslie and Pat, Pat who have been terrific, about what actions um, can somebody take now? They, they leave here, they have some issues around uh, land use decision-making, they want to do this. What is, what is an action step or a, a place to start on a bridge building project? Patrick? Um, two things. Of course, one, go buy the book. <laughs> and number two uh, would be, you know, we, we did a study really quickly. We did a study in Vermont around land use mediation. And Vermont, there's an environmental of course, that hears most land use uh, appeals. And what was striking is we surveyed people who had gone up to the state appeals court around these land use decisions is once they had, they had essentially, you know, appealed the decision to the local board, they stopped talking to each other completely. And we were shocked at how little people actually had conversations or tried to resolve their differences and just let kind of the, the dispute roll through the formal process at everyone's expense, except for maybe the attorneys. And so I think the one piece of advice I would say is go talk to people. You know, people you don't like, people you're afraid of, people you think are going to listen to you, go talk to them. Because in some ways, talk is costless, and you might learn something or find something out, and it actually might be better than you think. Thank you, Pat. And check out um, his book on land and conflict or go to the Consensus Building Institute website. Great to have you on this call. And Leslie, what would you recommend people how to get started in, in this wonderful work that you're doing? Well, I, I guess uh, I would uh, I would very much echo what Pat said, was go out and start talking to people. That's the whole relationship thing. Um, that I think is so important. But I think one concrete way you could do that is maybe, depending on your circumstance, try to try to create a different alternative space than maybe the county courthouse or wherever formal hearings happen. Um, maybe it is around somebody's kitchen table that uh, is willing to host and, and bring, you know, some folks together in it. But I would consider a safe, intimate space, um, you know, and in my community, that would mean if, if you work in town uh, as a county planner, you're going to come out to somebody's ranch, see what's on the ground out there, listen to the issues, see them firsthand in a space that's not threatening for folks. Um, that seems to start building some of those relationships and, and bridges. Um, and the other piece I would just say is that we make an awful lot of assumptions about uh, what the other people think and uh, what their motivations might be. And I found I'm always surprised 
to, to find that we have much more common in, in our interests than we might have thought. So I'd start there as well. Great point, Leslie. Thank you both, Leslie and Pat, and all of you for participating in the call today. And thanks, Caitlin, for um, all the organizational work that has um, made this call possible today. Don't forget to sign up for the next call on May 9th when we'll explore how to strengthen civic infrastructure, the opportunities, activities, and arenas, both online and face-to-face, -face, that allow people to connect with each other, solve problems, and make decisions, and celebrate community. Good luck with your consensus building.